be great to grab the blue Bibles that are either on the floor or on the seats uh, next to you and open them up to our reading today, which is from Luke 10, uh, verse 38 through to 11.13, as Audrey comes up to read for us. Thanks, Audrey. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, why don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks, Audrey. My name is uh, Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here, uh, and we'll be looking for the next little while at a section Audrey just read for us in Luke. So please uh, keep your Bible open. You'll find that helpful. Uh, and you may find it helpful. There's an uh, outline in your leaflet as well. Um, Kelly, please just let me know when my time's up. I'll, um, <laughs> I'll probably ignore you and keep speaking, but it'd be, be nice to know how long I'm supposed to go for. Anyway, um, in this section of Luke... The section of Luke we've been looking at over the past few weeks, Jesus has been instructing his disciples on what life is like following Jesus. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open, uh, at the end of chapter 9, you might remember if you cast your uh, eyes back there, end of chapter 9 we saw that it's costly and possibly dangerous to follow Jesus. We saw at the start of chapter 10 uh, that a disciple's life is tied up with the greatest project in history, Christian mission. And part of what we saw last week is that humility before God is crucial uh, for a disciple of Jesus. So what we've seen so far is uh, some really big principles of being a disciple, some dramatic statements about the cost of following Jesus and really the excitement of Christian mission. We've seen some big stuff. 
Today, the focus for us uh, moves from the big, exciting, and dramatic uh, to kind of the, well, really, the mundane, the everyday life. Uh, we have here a story about listening to Jesus' words and praying. If you've spent much time in churches, like uh, many of you have, uh, I'm sure you've been encouraged to, to pray regularly and to read the Bible more. And being told uh, that these are the two sort of tangible things that disciples have on their to-do list each day. Read the Bible and pray. The two tangible things disciples should do. The problem is, when I put it like that, you know, the two tasks Christians should do, doesn't sound that great, does it? Uh, if you're someone here this morning checking out who Jesus is, uh, and you don't consider yourself yet to be a committed follower, firstly, it's great you're here. We, uh, we love uh, having uh, people coming out and checking out who Jesus is. But as I sort of describe, those are the two tasks that Christians do. If they're the core activities of day-to-day Christian life, doesn't sound that appealing, does it? Especially if you don't like reading and praying, well, that kind of sounds strange. If you are a committed follower of Jesus, well, to hear those two activities are the core activities in day-to-day Christian life, that might not sound very appealing to you either, especially if you don't like reading. And praying, well, that's strange and hard. On top of that, uh, for Christians who are constantly encouraged or challenged to pray more, to read the Bible more, it can just get tiring, can't it? Uh, Especially if it sort of stirs up feelings of guilt, that we, we don't read enough, we don't pray enough, or perhaps feelings of failure, that we don't do it well enough, we're not doing something right. In the passages we're looking at today, we see that these are not just tasks to tick off the to-do list. Prayer and Bible reading, uh, just to be very clear up front, Bible reading and prayer don't earn us favour with God, that's not on view. Instead, as we think about the significance of what happens when we're listening to Jesus' words and the significance of what happens when we pray, we realise we're not talking about mundane day-to-day activities, even though on the surface it might appear that way. The reason is words are very powerful. God's words, as we come to them, they they do things, they're powerful, they change us, they move us. And prayer, well, the words we use are what God uses to bring about history. So rather than feeling that Christians must do these tasks, hopefully we see, as we spend some time in this passage, we're not talking about religious chores. These things are good. And hopefully we'll see that we can joyfully choose to do them. So as we uh, look in Luke, we've been uh, keeping on the theme of discipleship. And we're on the road here in verse 38 with Jesus. We meet two sisters. Uh, They seem to be disciples of Jesus. Martha opens her home and welcomes him in. And possibly Jesus and his whole entourage. So it's a big group, potentially. Now for any of you who grew up with a sibling, I reckon this is perhaps the most relatable story of all time. Uh, some of us had Martha's experience. Uh, some of you can identify with a Martha. You, would, you did all the work. Uh, you were the responsible sibling. You carried all the uh, responsible duties. You're obedient. You're diligent. Meanwhile, your lazy, good-for-nothing sibling just sits around, taking it easy, enjoying the good life. Let you do all the work. I see a few too many nods at this point. That's all right. Uh, some of you had Mary's experience. You had a bossy sibling who takes themselves way too seriously and they dob you in at the first opportunity they get when you know, you're not doing what they want you to do. 
Uh, now, by the way, if you're not sure whether you're a Mary or a Martha, my hunch is you're probably a Mary, if you're not sure on that one. That's, that's just me. So for all the Marthas in the room, does it seem like Martha gets kind of a bad deal here as you read this story? I mean, if you had a guest coming to stay at your house, and possibly, you know, some of their friends as well, a good Martha instantly thinks of the thousand things we need to do. Like, I need to clean the bathroom, get some more toilet paper, clean out junk in the spare room. Oh, I need to change the sheets. Oh, the sheets are in the wash. Now, dietary requirements, how many meals do I need to make? Think all those things straight away, right? You generate the list, off you go. And there are hundreds of things to do because, well, because having a guest is important. You want to look after them. You want to show you care for them and honour them. And even more so, if it's an esteemed guest, like, I don't know, the lord of the entire universe, you probably want to clean the bathroom twice, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, your good-for-nothing sibling, or perhaps uh, for some of you today, if it's easy to imagine, your pragmatically challenged spouse... Meanwhile, meanwhile, they say, oh, it's great, Jesus is coming, I can't wait. And that's the full extent of their preparations. Like, what's wrong with them? In verse 40, as Martha comes to Jesus, what she asks seems very reasonable. Like, this is a culture that values hospitality. And so normally in a story like this, like Martha would actually be the hero. You know, the visiting rabbi would probably say some wise things about how important hospitality is and something about useless siblings and everyone has, you know, everyone gets on there their day. But Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. In verse 41, he doesn't, rebu- doesn't rebuke Mary. And he doesn't rebuke Martha either. Uh, it's not a, at least it's not a stern rebuke. Uh, it seems repeating her name, Martha, Martha, it's not sort of Jesus shaking his head or rolling his eyes. Um, all the commentators would say this sort of expresses a sort of a tender personal concern. Martha, Martha, you're worried, you're upset by lots of things. But there's only one thing that's needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. Jesus is helping Martha see that Mary is not being lazy, she's not being negligent. She's chosen the most important thing, the best thing. Look back at verse 39. We have this beautiful picture where Mary chooses to sit at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Well, literally, it's listening to his word. Jesus is not just another guest. He's not just a visiting rabbi. Yes, he is the Lord of the entire universe, and he deserves honor. But his task, as he, as he carried out his mission on earth, his task was to preach, to spread the word about the kingdom of God. So if you're taking notes, you could uh, have a look at the end of chapter 4 later to kind of see Jesus' priority in his mission. Jesus came to speak. His words are the very words of God himself. Jesus' words are the most important, the most powerful, the most life-changing words that have ever been spoken. In fact, the words that he speaks have the same source as the entire universe. He made the universe by his words. So God's words for us are not merely marks on a page, not vibrations in the air. His words are precious beyond compare. Through his word, God reveals who he is. He shows us what he is like. His word gives us hope. We find words of healing, of comfort, of truth and clarity. 
In his words, we find peace and joy. And we understand how we can enjoy a relationship with him. So imagine Jesus comes to your house for lunch or something, and he starts speaking. If we were too busy to listen to him, well, we miss out on the best words ever spoken. So Martha's problem is not that she wants to be a good host. That's a fine, that's a good thing to do. Her problem is just not understanding how good Jesus' words are. This is the Son of God who alone has the words of eternal life. And so Mary chose what was better. It's better than anything else she could have done. She placed herself at Jesus' feet to listen. Now this short and uh, I think very relatable account is, is about how good it is to listen to the words of Jesus, to hear God's word. The thing is for us that we don't need Jesus to physically rock up to our house for lunch. We already have God's word very available and accessible and it's just as powerful and just as precious. Uh, and perhaps if you're someone who hasn't read the Bible much as an adult, this may well be worth checking out. Does Jesus really have the words of eternal life? Are the words of God in the Bible really as good as I'm making them sound? If that's you, we'd love to help you explore the question a bit further and perhaps uh, yeah, help you think more about what the Bible is, how it fits together. But we all have lives that are full of good things to do, Good things. The passage isn't suggesting that Christians just read the Bible all day, every day. That's not, it's not going on. It's about priority. It's about choosing what is best. See, unless we're convinced that hearing and engaging with God's Word is the best thing we can do, I don't think we'll choose to do it. There are so many other good things to do that, like, let's face it, most other things take less mental energy, less concentration, less persistence. But being convinced that's very good for us is very different, isn't it? To sort of feeling motivated by guilt or obligation or duty. And rather than trying to fit the Bible into, you know, into our busy lives, this passage is urging us to sort of structure our days and our weeks as we're able, with God's Word as our priority, and then we make our busy lives around that. Now, I'm going to say, I know this is far easier to say than to do, I'll be the first to say my priorities uh, don't always match my convictions. But when I consider sort of the amount of verbal content I absorb in a day, so, you know, on social media or reading the news, Netflix, podcasts, conversations with others, reading articles, books, it's a vast amount of words of content that I'm taking in. It's often good, but the ratio, perhaps, uh, of contents other than the Bible to Bible, doesn't really reflect the reality for me of what's best. This this week's been a timely challenge for me. I'm sure it is uh, for many, because the challenge is to not treat God's Word as a chore, simply having conviction that it's very good. I think that conviction, actually, is what changes our habits, changes our focus. And that conviction makes us far more likely to sort of organise our weekends, uh, to give us every chance to gather on Sundays to hear God's Word. Or saying no to some commitments so that we have more time to make it to community groups, to sit around God's Word with others. Or just the routines of our days. We, we decide, no, I want a habit, I want a routine that will give me a chance to spend some time in God's Word. Not because we have to, 
but because it's very good. God's Word is powerful. It's how He continues to change us, to transform us. What's amazing, as we turn to the next section in Luke, as we turn to chapter 11, we see that through our prayers, it's God is changing the world. Now, prayer is, of course, a very big and uh, crucial topic for us. And as we look at this passage here today, there's a lot we won't cover. Um, Kelly will get me down before I cover too much. Uh, and hopefully later in the year we'll come back and have a series on prayer because uh, it, is, it is worth covering in more depth. But uh, what we're looking at today, even as briefly as we are, is foundational for Christian prayer. Now it might seem a bit odd in verse 1 that a disciple asks Jesus to pray, kind of assume, you know, how do you, how do you not know how to pray? It's just, you just talk to God, right? That's true, it is just as simple as talking to God. We don't need fancy words, we don't need uh, special ways to pray. And so it is striking but at the same time, we do need to learn, we need to be taught how to pray. Yes, we can talk to God about anything and everything, but it may be that if that's all we do, good though it is, if that's all we do, just take our concerns, or well, are we praying as Christians, as disciples of Jesus? That is, uh, would our prayers look any different to the prayers of a Muslim or a Hindu? But another way still... What is it about being a Christian that shapes our prayers? What do Christians pray about? In verses 2 to 4, uh, what's often called the Lord's Prayer uh, is Luke's version. It's, it's much shorter than the one you're probably uh, more familiar with, which uh, is found in Matthew. It's much longer in Matthew. I don't know why Luke uh, reports a shorter version. And yet, as you sort of compare the two, you realise the focus in this short prayer in Luke is the same as in the longer, more popular version. Now, as we sort of look at this, it may be helpful to know that throughout history, uh, Christians have prayed the Lord's Prayer as it is. Like you just read it through and pray it as we do here together from time to time. But Christians have also used this as a sort of a structure or, or a platform to guide or inform our prayers. So it's not just, not just something to recite, uh, but it recognises that Jesus is telling us what to pray, the things to pray about, not just giving us specific words, if I can uh, put it that way. So, what do Christians pray? We address Father. It's not a fancy start, really. But it's an amazing start. I'm conscious that uh, for many, the word Father is, uh, is connected with negative emotions and experiences. And so addressing God as Father is not a, a naturally comforting or uh, enjoyable thing to do. Though as we see Jesus' relationship with His Heavenly Father, we say that God is the perfect Father. As Father, God Himself sets the standard that all other fathers will kind of fail to live up to. So as we turn to God in prayer, to be able to call Him Father, it's supposed to be a great comfort. That as we pray, even though in reality we're addressing a, a, really a terrifyingly powerful and holy God who sits on His throne, that we actually have no right to approach. Yet, we can. We approach him with confidence in the same way that a small child speaks to their father. Hi, Dad. No other religion, no other sort of school of prayer encourages such a comfortable, confident familiarity. And rightly so. Because no other religion has the good news that Jesus brings. That in Jesus we can have peace. A real relationship with our Creator. Not being afraid of Him or His judgment 
but being loved like little children. Religion is about earning favour, trying to please the gods, and the prayers of other religions tend to be structured to that end, with sacrifice and long-winded prayers, trying to sort of convince the gods that we're worthy of, you know, uh, of their help. But the good news for the follower of Jesus is that we already have the favour of God. Not because of anything we do, but because God as Father has shown us incredible grace. He's taken the initiative. He sent Jesus to take the punishment for sin that we deserve so that we're reconciled to God. God forgives our sins so that we can be at peace with Him and can enjoy life with Him as Father. That's the good news. We can speak to God as Father. We know that we have His favour already as we approach Him in prayer. We can address Him confidently, relationally, and yet not without respect or reverence. So, Father, that's familiar, hallowed be Your name. Respect and reverence. What we're praying there is asking that God and His own name, so He would be honoured, as he should be, that everyone would be in awe of who God is, holy and good and wonderful and majestic. And so it seems our first concern in prayer is not actually the things in our lives that worry us the most. Our first concern is God's honour and His agenda. The second concern we have is much like it, your kingdom come. What we're asking for here is, is probably two things, at least. First thing, uh, that many people would turn to Jesus as the God of, as, sorry, as uh, the King of God's kingdom, Jesus. Many would turn to Him and find salvation and eternal life, and that's been happening for the last two thousand years as God has been answering this prayer. The second thing we're asking for is for that final day to come, a day when Jesus will come again to establish His kingdom forever doing away with all rivals and all other kingdoms and powers. We look forward to that day because that's the day that injustice and evil and oppression are dealt with forever. These are very big things to be praying for, aren't they? God's honour, His kingdom. Are there any other things that would be better than this that we could pray about or for than God's honour and His rightful reign? Christian prayer starts with God and His glory and His agenda. And that puts the rest of our prayers in the right context. So verse 3, the prayer for daily bread. Each day. Now, this is the kind of prayer I imagine would be, uh, would be far quicker to pray if we lived in a uh, situation where we don't know where our next meal is coming from. I honestly can't say I've ever been worried about going hungry. Admittedly, I have uh, sometimes thought I'd die from hunger before dinner, but that's not the same thing. I suppose that I think our cultural situation makes it even more important for us as Christians to pray this prayer for our daily bread. In case we start thinking that, well, we'll get food whether God gives it to us or not. This prayer reminds us of how dependent we are for everything. Everything we need to survive and persevere comes from God Himself. The words daily bread actually might even make us think of... um, how with daily bread, God provided the Israelites with food to sustain them in the desert for 40 years. Bread, uh, so manna, would fall literally from heaven each day. 
That's how God sustains his people till they reach the promised land. So that kind of daily bread imagery in mind from, uh, from Exodus, with that in mind, asking for our daily bread is not just a prayer for physical provision, definitely is, but it's also asking that God would give us everything, physical, spiritual, emotional, everything we need to sustain us in his service until we reach the promised land. Verse 4. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. This takes us right to the heart of the Christian message and the Christian life. The good news that forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus to be at peace with God and to have assurance of eternal life with him in his kingdom. This prayer is is picturing life in the kingdom, forgiven, at peace with God, and so able to extend that same peace and forgiveness to others. Praying for forgiveness like this so simply yet brilliantly, well, it reminds us on one hand, yes, we need God's forgiveness, but also, in Jesus, we have that forgiveness. All we need to do is ask. The request to lead us not into temptation, well, that's, that's also, isn't it, about God's kingdom and living in it as we ought to. As we pray that, we're acknowledging that He knows the right way to live. He's the one who rules and reigns. And he's the one who provides the help we need to honour him as our king. Now, this short prayer is not designed to restrict our prayers, like we must only pray this or something. We can, of course, pray about anything and everything that uh, is on our minds and our hearts. But this here is the, the shape of Christian prayer. And that gives shape to all of our prayers. Where our most important concern is the majesty of God and the sureness that his kingdom will come. It's a prayer that's deeply uh, connected to the gospel promises of forgiveness and peace that comes with uh, knowing God as Father. And so, as it comes to us and our own concerns, it's right that we're concerned about how to live in God's kingdom, dependent on him, forgiven by him, and extending that grace and forgiveness to others. It's a brilliant prayer, and I think as I hold my own prayers up alongside this, it's a little bit confronting. My prayers often start and finish with my own individual experiences and hopes. Again, that's okay. It's fine to pray for all the things we should and uh, have on our mind, but what Jesus is teaching us is to pray for what's best. Praying for what's best. And we need Jesus, actually, to keep instructing us on that. So Jesus has taught us what to pray, we also need to know how to pray. It's not, you know, do we close our eyes or kneel or whatever. I mean, what's our attitude as we come to God in prayer? Is it just casual, you know, hey God, how's it going? I've got a few requests, if you've got time. If not, it's fine, I'll come back later. What's our attitude as we come to God in prayer? Uh, in verses 5 to 8, Jesus tells a short parable, and I'm not sure, I think he's being funny at this point. Um, I like to think Jesus had a great sense of humor. I think there's one instance where that's possibly coming through. He's actually putting us in the parable. He says, imagine, you know, you have a friend. So this is you. You're in the parable. Uh, you've had a guest rock up and you can't feed them. A guest rocks up, you can't feed them. That's a big deal for them culturally. Uh, it's a big shame. Uh, shame on your family if you can't uh, provide hospitality. So uh, you go to one of your friends. In the middle of the night, you're asking for help. It's a pretty desperate situation. All you're after is three loaves of bread. Now, it's to feed one guest, so I don't think we're supposed to think, you know, three massive loaves. It's three kind of small, you know, flat breads or something like that. Um, 
It's not a huge amount to ask for. And actually, as we find out, your friend has the loaves, that's not a problem. It's not a big request. But your friend says, sorry, I can't help, I'm in bed. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I think this is supposed to be ridiculous. Like, what kind of friend wouldn't get up to help you in this situation? My suggestion is not a good friend, or at least a friend you won't have for much longer. That is, perhaps a modern equivalent for us is uh, knocking on a friend's door late at night saying, look, I'm really sorry to bother you. My wife's in labor. I've got a flat battery. Can you come and give us a jump start? Like, and they say, no, nah, sorry, I'm watching Netflix, kind of busy. Like, it feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? A bit ridiculous. And Jesus explains his point in verse 8. Even if you did, even if you did have such a ridiculously bad friends, well, even then, you know they're going to get up. Not just because you're friends, or friends, it's because you're knocking at their door. Like, shamelessly. You sought their help boldly, urgently, confidently, and, if need be, persistently. So even if they are a bad friend, they won't ignore you. Like, they will help you eventually. Now, the point of all this is not that God is a tired, grumpy old man who will throw bread at us until we leave him alone. Like, the point is, our prayer doesn't fall on deaf ears. And to get what we need, we need to ask. Boldly. Ask confidently. Ask urgently, and if necessary, persistently. God really does respond to our prayers. This seems to be the point of this parable. You might have wondered about this before, you might have wondered about this before but like, why, why pray at all? Like God knows what we want, doesn't he, before we even ask him. He's in control of everything, like he knows the future, so why pray? What we see in verses 9 to 10, as Jesus goes on, it's, it's because God really does respond to our prayer. There is a real relationship between asking God for something and receiving something. It's a real relationship, Jesus says. Yes, God could have made a universe where we don't need to pray and things just happen, but Jesus is teaching very clearly God's intention is to answer prayers. We could say, actually, that God uses our prayers to bring about his plans as he answers our prayers. So why has God made our prayers such an important part of his plans? Well, as Jesus goes on in verses 11 to 13, it's because of who God is. God loves to give good things to his children when we ask him. It's a delight to him that we pray. And so we pray knowing that he is really good. Verse 13, it does sound a bit odd at first, as sort of Jesus finishes this section on prayer. Like, suddenly the Holy Spirit's kind of a feature in the discussion. Like, well, how did this happen? How does this all fit in? Well, if we take a step back and think about how God achieves his plans in the world, how does God achieve what he set out, sets out to do? The Holy Spirit is how God achieves his plans. The Holy Spirit is how God grows his kingdom. The work of the Holy Spirit is how he changes hearts and reveals his majesty. God's Spirit applies to us the benefits of salvation. The Spirit sustains our life, our physical life, our spiritual life. God's Spirit provides us what we need, the strength to face temptation. The Holy Spirit is the answer to our prayers. His work 
is the answer to our prayers. And so praying as Jesus teaches us, it is what changes the world. It's how we participate in God's work. Our prayers really matter to God. And so to finish where we started today, Bible reading and prayer. They're not just jobs we need to do each day. God's words are incredibly powerful and they're precious. The best words we could engage with in our day. Our prayers are incredibly effective as we ask God to work through His Spirit to bring about His plans. So this week, what might we do to choose what is better? Not easier. Not choosing what's easier. I never said easier or more convenient. We know this. But how do we choose what is better? What old habit might we want to change or new habit might we want to start? Might be as simple as monitoring our own screen time. How might we move things around in our week or our day? And this is exactly the sort of conversation would be great to continue on in over morning tea. Like, ask each other, what kind of habits have you found helpful uh, to keep choosing what is better? Clearly, uh, we'll all need God's help to do this. So, of course, let's pray. Father, what a privilege that we can speak knowing you listen and delight to give us good things. Hallowed be your name. As we and your people all around the world represent you, might we bring you great glory. Your kingdom come. Might your rule over each of our lives increase. And please bring on the day when we see our Lord Jesus. Forgive us our sins reminding us of the power of the cross to save us and by your grace given to us. Please help us also to extend that grace and mercy to others as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but by the might and power of your Spirit. Help us to keep choosing what is good. Help us spend time in your word to understand and be transformed by it. And please grow us to be more like your Son, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.